0: St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greason, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So tonight we begin our third class on the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And I just kind of give a little bit of a backdrop of what I'm trying to do in these classes. Um so this class is basically for anyone who's interested in understanding or deepening their life in Christ, but especially as it's taught and expounded upon in the Orthodox faith or the Orthodox tradition. Uh and I'm using the divine liturgy as a kind of skeleton upon which to hang things on. So that's probably the reason why we're on the third class and we're still in like one of the first things that you hear at the very beginning of the liturgy. Um I'm not purposefully trying to go glacially slow, but I want to cover a lot of things, and in the first phrase of liturgy, we could actually, if you look up on Ancient Faith Radio, for example, uh, which is, has a many, 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 many podcasts, um, you'll find Father Thomas Hopko, who's a former dean of St. Vladimir Seminary, my alma mater, and Father Thomas Hopko has beyond his own kind of, uh, say, dogmatic and Christian teaching podcast, he has one that's basically a writing commentary on the divine liturgy. So I took a look at it, and (laughs) he has eight classes on just the priest's prayer, or seven classes on just the prayers the priest does that you probably didn't even know that the priest did, for example. Because as the priest gets dressed to begin the preparatory rite before the liturgy, so at least an hour or so before you get to church, the priest is there and he's saying prayers uh, as he dresses himself. So, and all the preparatory prayers, because there's even entrance prayers that are done by the priest. And if you are serving with the deacon, then the deacon. Um, so, I'm not going to be as in depth or as historical, maybe, that Hopko can hit at certain points, but I want us to be able to encounter the basic service uh, at the core of our faith, but also what you probably experience. Uh, regularly. So if I try to do the vigil um, of the Orthodox Church, which is for particular feast days and things, I might get a lot of blank stares because not everybody is able, because of their schedule, et cetera, to be able to come out for a vigil. Uh, but every Sunday morning and every feast day, uh, we have basically Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom or uh, a little bit of addition of St. Basil, which is basically certain prayers that are switched out. Basil is basically longer than John Chrysostom. We'll talk about that later on, probably in about 15 classes. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't do the liturgy of St. James. I've been to three of them in my life. We, we could do it, but it's not a normative practice within the Orthodox Church of America to do the, the liturgy of St. James. It's, it's all archaeological, <laughs> and there's a lot of, I don't want to say creativity, but trying to imagine something that did not last historically as a practice so
1: but liturgy of saint james was the dominant liturgy of orthodox
0: britain i don't know that maybe so
1: i believe it was a variation on
0: that well so well i'll pass over that for now (laughs) another year yeah well but, but there's always this tendency within orthodoxy to do archaeological work and i'm not saying anything about what you're saying terry as much as just what we could do is I could give you a lot of historical facts and we can excavate and look at the divine liturgy like in Syria, they did this. Isn't that neat? And you'd be like, what do you do? (laughs) Like we don't do that. Or like, now I know the echoes of something. Sometimes that's helpful because then you can understand why we do certain things. So there's an element there, but I I would hope to talk about what we actually engage with in our, our life of faith. So if you go like the Coptic Church, and I think if you look at like the Ethiopic Church, which we are not in full communion with, uh, they have liturgies upon liturgies upon liturgies, and they have anaphras and anaphras and anaphras. But uh we're going to be talking about what that we you would experience in coming to St. Anne's and what the basic kind of Chalcedonian uh Greek-speaking Christian world did, then Slav world did, because that's the tradition that we are in. So We've been discussing uh, the creation of the Kingdom of God, or how God was calling out uh, Israel through the promise that he gave to Abraham and to the patriarchs, and the creation of Israel and God's holy people on Mount Sinai, and looking at that as a kind of paradigm for the way that God interacts with his people, the way that God then also structures his people and their worship and the way they're to live, etc. So. We're now going to look at, um, I want to take a little bit of a different tact and still talk about uh, God at the center of this kingdom, but we say at the very beginning of the liturgy, right, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we already have uh, some specific um, contours given to whose kingdom that is, and it's the kingdom of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And I kinda wanna take just a step back and talk a little bit about, uh, how shall I say this? What passes for a kind of basic Christianity that is out there, a kind of almost like an anemic form of modern Christianity that dominates um, most of Christian discourse. When we say Christian, we typically mean what I'm about to outline it doesn't necessarily have the contours of a faith specifically in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or if it does, that's not necessarily front and center. There's a lot of other things that are floating around, or there's not much uh, specificity or particularity attached to Christian uh, as much as these particular beliefs that I'm about to outline. So one of the things that is the backdrop is when somebody says they're Christian in North America, what are they typically kind of mean that they're a monotheist maybe they're kind they believe in a God that's similar to what the Jews believe they don't really know if Muslims believe in the same God and I'm not talking about uh, I had to say it, like fundamentalist Christianity or something like that but this kind of the general concept of Christianity there's this kind of idea that believe in God Jesus he might be the son of God, but he might be a pretty cool guy who taught a lot of great stuff, and we need to emulate him, but we don't really understand what his relationship is with to the Father. So he might be, like, the best guy that ever lived, but and maybe divinity somehow, like, in him somehow, but we're not really sure. And then the Holy Spirit, of course, then you can get, you get all sorts of stuff about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit leads me to do all sorts of things, uh, talks to me. All sorts of stuff. So this is the kind of landscape. You have some people who kind of like specialize in the Holy Spirit. You have some people who specialize uh, in Jesus in various forms. You don't really have people who specialize in the Father because, well, I don't know. <laughs> just not as popular. Jesus seems to be the center of everything. But I, w- I would suggest to you, and you maybe have heard this term before, of the default position of much of contemporary American thought uh, as outlined by The Notre Dame sociologist, and I believe he published this in a book with someone else, but I know the name of Christian Smith, um, and it's Moral Therapeutic Deism.
1: Moralistic.
0: Whatever. Moral Therapeutic Deism, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Okay, so what is Moralistic Therapeutic Deism? So there's basically five basic points to it. Uh, God exists, who created and ordered the world, and he watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. Except there's some problems with that that we'll tease out. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life, this is number three, is to be happy and feel good about oneself. You're laughing. (laughs) Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. We kind of talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I mean, that, that's one of the basic kind of creedal points of, uh, say, blasé Christianity in North America. Um, the one way that somebody articulated this, God is the kind of cosmic butler all right, maybe you could say Santa Claus. He's also the, the great therapist, right? When you need him, you call him up, and he gets you out of a jam, or he listens to your troubles as you make uh, your great uh, commitments and vows when you need him. Um, but is this the God that we know as revealed uh, in historic Christianity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is this the same God? So... This is where we get beyond God as someone who exists in order of the world, but he watches over it from a distance, right? God is not really involved in my day-to-day life. He's somebody who I call up when I need something. He's somebody that I fall back upon. And if I basically live, and this is where you get the moralistic or moral uh, therapeutic deism, if I live nice, right, if I'm nice to people, if I'm basically good, I guess it depends on what you think about uh, the state. Uh, if I pay my taxes, if I, you know, contribute to the common good, um, and then you get all sorts of fascinating mixes of how exactly we're supposed to relate to the nation-state. But uh, if I'm a good citizen, if I'm a good person, I volunteer, uh, you know, the dog pound or something, then that is what God wants me to do. Uh, it also. Is that this is basically the kernel of every world religion. It's not just biblical Christianity. This is basically if you were to go other places, um, I mean I hate to it's, I've never seen Eat Pray Love. Has anyone seen or read Eat Pray Love? Yes. I've seen it. Yes. There's a kind of this is the kind of framework in the background.
1: It's Williamson
0: too. Where Marian Williamson Marianne
1: Williamson put all of this into its ultimate form in about nineteen eighty eight through 1990 in a book called A Return to Love, which basically helped form Oprah's on-screen persona. And now we, of course, have Marianne Williamson as a candidate for president.
0: So I, I was going to say Oprah next. Oprah is another <laughs> form of this, which it's basically, I mean, you could also, Joel Osteen, Live Your Best Life Now. You can just kind of trade out. And there's a reason why this becomes uh, very big on television why it sells movies or books, Uh, it doesn't really require very much out of you that's beyond anything. So it's moralistic, right? If you're you're in tune with God, whoever that is exactly, because we can't really know, and it's basically the same as all wisdom uh, traditions out there, uh, then that's what it is. And then you get snuck in the back door, this idea of heaven, uh, that if you're basically good, then everybody just goes to heaven. Terry.
1: There was a, an anthem for this a number of years ago. You're probably too young.
0: Well, when you <laughs> said 82, I was already okay. <laughs> not alive. Bette Midler
1: wrote a song called From a Distance, which actually is one of the all-time effective statements of what you're saying.
0: From a Distance.
1: From a Distance is the name of the song. The key, the key parts from a distance were instruments marching in a common band, playing songs of hope, playing songs of peace. We are the songs of every man. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance.
0: (laughs) There you go. Perfect uh, illustration. Uh, Now, this, uh, you might be surprised, I'm going to say, this doesn't really align with uh, the revelation of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, It is that we'll find our relationship and communion with God is not built around moralism right? That is not, uh, yes, we are to go after the virtues. We are to live into a certain way of living that is virtuous. You have St. Mark the ascetic who says all of the revelation or the treasure of God is basically wrapped up in his commandments, that if you're going to understand Jesus Christ, it means that you actually do what he says. Um, but it's also this idea of God who's distant is completely at odds with the basic revelation uh, that God gives. I mean, we don't even have to talk about Jesus yet, but at Sinai, you already have a personal revelation of God saying, this is who I am, and I'm calling you out, Moses, and I'm going to develop a particular relationship with you, Moses, and with this people, Israel, and that means that you're going to have to live in a particular way, and that I will then basically guide you to the promised land. So we believe God is the creator. We don't believe that he just spun uh, the world into existence as just kind of a machine. This is where the deism comes out, right? God is distant, looking at us, doing our kind of basic human things. If we're basically good and nice to people, then everything will go all all right. Um, But we have a God who's a creator who's also, as scripture talks about him, as a jealous God, who intervenes in our life, who works to liberate us even maybe sometimes a little kicking and screaming away from our idols and the things that we are attached to and love uh, but that are killing us he's not a distant observer of who we are and what we're doing uh, and he intensely cares about who we are and what we're doing he specifically differentiates differentia- that makes a difference between himself and the other gods he is the God of Israel. Remember when we read in Exodus uh, that he says, I'm the God who carried you out on eagle's wings. He has a very specific idea, uh, narrative that he's brought us into so that it's not a kind of generic, uh, kind of cosmopolitan spirituality that almost always gives itself over to, like, an eat, pray, love, a kind of consumeristic spirituality, right? I'm going to pick up mindfulness and I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble and I'm yeah. going to buy a book or two, maybe a Kindle if I don't want to go to Barnes and Noble and help them go out of existence. Uh, and I'm going to become mindful or I'm going to pick up. OK, I have to tell it. So I was sitting in a coffee shop one time and I had this fellow to my right or left, I can't remember. He's probably on my left. Let's just say he was on my left. <laughs> he was kind of obviously decked out as a Buddhist, right? There's the signs that if you're a Buddhist, right, particular uh, necklace that you wear or this particular prayer uh, aids that they have. And I couldn't help but notice him constantly talking about how awesome Buddhism was and how like stupid Christianity was. The reason why is because Buddhism has, you know, no heaven or hell. It's just not present. And I'm sitting there going, the town I lived in at the time was Bloomington, Indiana, and it has two Tibetan monasteries there because they are uh, not in communion with each other. One of The Dalai Lama's brother lives there. He owns, well, that's a whole other story. Uh, but if you know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, a lot of hell. they have a lot of hell. They make Dante's hell look like paradise. So I was just sitting there and like, well, I guess if you take a lot, like, sure, there's a lot of forms of Buddhism out there. But if you take a certain form of Japanese Buddhism, transport it to California about 50 years ago, take out a few more of the like particular metaphysics of it, and the gods and demons and all that stuff, I guess that you have a Buddhism that's nothing like Christianity. But you're it—it it just doesn't—it falls apart. So what you want, you're going to find because somebody's going to sell you something, right? And Eat, Pray, Love is almost always a It's a kind of story about how whatever you, finding yourself, all this kind of story about you're going to find your own uh, goodness, inner power, Deepak Chopra, I mean, just go down the list of all the bestsellers of contemporary spirituality. All the power resides within you. You just got to change your mind a little bit about a few things, and then you will suddenly come out into this vista of wholeness, uh, peace, etc., That's not Christianity. So, Christianity, the central goal, of course, uh, is joy. There's joy in following God and worshiping God and being communion with God, but it's not just a kind of facile happiness or a kind of hedonistic pursuit of feeling good. Uh, I mean, Jesus obviously died on a cross, he didn't end up having a nice, you know, I'm turning 33. Now I'm going to celebrate myself and invite all my homies over. Um, So God is involved in the distinct details of our life. If you look at Exodus uh, and Leviticus, God, when He calls out Israel, He orders their entire existence. Um, Especially since we're at St. Anne's and with Father Stephen's connection, where he likes to quote Harawas. I've got a Harawas quote here for you. Uh, And maybe Father. Stephen has shared this quote before. But if not, I have another Harraw's quote for you. Uh Hauerwas goes on about how religion is really not interesting at all and not something to follow if it doesn't have anything to dictate about how you eat and uh, how or what you're doing uh, in the bedroom. That if the if that if your god doesn't have to say anything to you about your stomach or your lower regions you're probably living a very uninteresting religion um the reason he's saying that is because there is something specific and particular about christianity that requires something the entirety of you and not just a few ideas that you get popped into your head but it is an embodied way of living that affects everything about you um Heaven is not a cartoon like reality after death. Uh, I still like some of the depictions uh, in The Simpsons where they have, you know, the Catholics have their heaven, the Protestants have their heaven. Uh, I wonder what they would depict Orthodox heaven like. Probably a lot of incense still. Um, But like the Catholics are having a good time and the Protestants are pretty boring. Uh, I think they're having kind of like, I don't know, playing badminton or something. Um, I guess that depicts. New England version of Protestantism because that doesn't really fly in the South as to what Protestantism would mean. Um, But this is the kind of idea that heaven is, you know, these little angels up there floating on clouds and we're going to get there. We don't really know what to do when we're going to get there, so why do we need to worry about that in the first place? That's the rejection of that kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And this is completely different from the promised land or the throne room of God, the presence of God. The As we saw at Sinai, like the gravity of the situation of actually encountering the creator. Coming to know who God is, as we see in Exodus, when he gives his name, he brings Israel into personal relationship with him. He acts to form them as a people. He calls them out. He gives them particular meaning. He gives them a way of life. He gives them direction. He gives them uh, leadership, right? Moses Uh, provides leaders. He knows that he can't do it all himself, so he has to appoint particular elders, and so there is a kind of governance that is given over the body. So God reveals God's self. It's not, it goes in particular opposition to what mostly traffics in kind of, uh, I would to say like pseudo-Christian, but the kind of like middle-of-the-road Christianity that has no particular content from God. Basically, if you pick up a few books, do a few self-help things, you've already kind of got an idea uh, of what heaven is. And it really, heaven's going to happen no matter what. Uh, unless you become, you know, and we, here we go, here goes the, unless you become Adolf Hitler or something, you know, go to the immediate Nazi. Everyone I don't like is a Nazi. Uh, <laughs> that kind of extreme, uh, you're going to end up in heaven. So what we believe about God, what we believe God desires for us, how he wants us to live, how he wants us to pray, what he's promised to us is found in Revelation. How he has revealed God's self as he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. How he has then revealed himself to us as we say in Jesus Christ, as we reflect in the liturgy. This is not uh, a philosophy. It's not uh, a particular Kind of amalgamation of leftovers of the basic tenets of Christianity that kind of float around out there. Um, so there's a quote that I want to share with you. We've had as we've um, as we're moving. I'm going to pivot now from this kind of I don't want to say paganism, but this basic kind of. Uh, lack of content and the basic kind of Christian marketplace, if you will, uh, versus what the particular revelation of God uh, that we have to Israel and then that we have in Jesus Christ. And what we've been in looking at salvation history and talking about, uh, and now I want to make it a little bit more explicit is the fullness of Christian revelation, of course, is that we have intimations of the kingdom of the father, son, and Holy spirit all throughout the old Testament. And so this is a quote from, let's see here if I can, oh, I'm on the wrong page, uh, from St. Gregory the Theologian, if you remember last week when we were talking about St. Gregory the Theologian as a fourth century uh, theologian who uh, is called within the Orthodox tradition uh, the kind of, um, how should I say, the uh, the Bard of the Spirit uh, of the Trinity. He is known as the Singer of the Holy Trinity. So, Saint Gregory the Theologian says the Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly, right? We have one God. The Son more obscurely. If you read the Old Testament, you'll notice very quickly when God acts, he he speaks via the Word of the Lord, right? The Word speaks for God throughout scripture. If you go through the historical books, uh, wisdom literature, you get this idea of kind of wisdom uh, speaking uh, forth for God. You have in the prophets then, of course, the word of the Lord came to this particular prophet, speaks to him. And there's also intimations throughout all of this of the Holy Spirit, that the word of the Lord speaks and then activity or the spirit comes upon someone and uh, makes them prophesy, or makes, uh, not makes, but allows them to do these particular things. This is me editing or commenting on Gregory the Theologian here. The new manifest of the New Testament manifests the Son, and suggested the deity of the Spirit. In other words, the New Testament is explicit. Jesus is Lord. It's not as explicit as much as implicit about the deity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clearer demonstration of himself. So you have in the Old Testament, you have a very clear depiction of the God, the Father. The New Testament, you have this very clear depiction. And of course, to all of this, the Trinity is being made more and more explicit. And now once we come into the age of the church, when Jesus Christ has revealed uh, himself, he reveals also the Holy Spirit. And all of this is kind of uh, almost, you can make it a progression of outer to inner, right? God the Father, uh, the Creator, this is kind of a typical way of talking about God the Father, Creator, uh, God the Son, the Revealer in history of the intent of God, the one who works out salvation for us upon the cross, and then the Holy Spirit. And we're going to turn all of this over and look at particular passages in Romans 8, because all of this uh, is very explicit in Romans explicit Paul is never super explicit <laughs> uh, but we can see all of this being worked out in Romans 8 uh, and the Holy Spirit is descends and is within us conforming us to the image of Christ making Christ available to us making as uh, if I remember the quote, quote correctly from Leo of Rome that in the sacraments Christ is present to us now via the Spirit and all the sacraments so it was not safe when the Godhead of the Father was not yet acknowledged plainly to proclaim the Son, nor when that of the Son was not yet received to burden us further, if I may use so bold an expression with the Holy Spirit. Lest perhaps people might, like men loaded with food beyond their strength and presenting eyes as yet too weak to bear it to the Sun's light, risk the loss even of that which was within the reach of their powers, but by gradual additions, and as David says goings up and advances and progress from glory to glory the light of the trinity might shine upon the more illuminated so gregory has here this idea of a kind of progression of uh, illumination or revelation of who god is god the father the kingdom of the father that is revealed to the father the god of israel the one who created all things the kingdom of the son As he comes and preaches the kingdom, the Messiah, the promised one in scripture, the revealer and the historical actor, and then the kingdom of the Holy Spirit. It's all the same kingdom, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with different actions from different persons of the Godhead, the perfecter, the one who internalizes and brings to completion what the Father thought the Son accomplished and the Spirit then applies basically to everyone. Uh, You might think of this, uh, for example... Why Jesus, it helps to think, why Jesus, when he turns and he's being grasped by Mary, and, you know, I want you to stay, and he says, let go of me, I have to move, like, move on, right? Because son had to complete uh, the rest of the plan of salvation. He had to be seen, but then he has to ascend to the Father, so that the Holy Spirit then, of course, what he says, go to Jerusalem, so that I may send the Holy Spirit upon you. Uh, This then universalizes access to Christ. Christ is now available to all of us uh, in the Holy Spirit. So as we've already uh, talked about in the last class, the Old Testament acts as a womb or a kind of pedagogy preparing uh, Israel and all of creation for the revelation of God as Trinity. So I want to talk a little bit about Christ as the theophany of God because all as we sing very explicitly at the feast of theophany uh, when you o lord were baptized in the jordan the worship of the trinity was made manifest for the voice of the father bore witness to you and called you his beloved son and the spirit in the form of a dove confirmed the truthfulness of his word O christ our god you have revealed yourself and have enlightened the world glory to you the whole doctrine of the trinity hinges upon god being revealed fully in jesus christ he is of an all. If you, I'm just trying, I want to give you the rudiments of Trinitarian uh, doctrine and s- because we could stay here. Well, we would stay here till the morning uh, to begin to build into and talk about the way that the fathers of the church uh, then protect, guard, and explicate what the Trinity is. And by that, it doesn't mean that they've somehow explained uh, God like they've got a specimen under the microscope, right? What they are able to do is be able to, through revelation, what God has given us, to be able to give us kind of boundary markers of how how to talk about God, Uh, what it means to say that Jesus is fully God, uh, while God the Father is God, right? I mean, my kids are already starting to ask questions like, wait a second. how is God the Father God and Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Doesn't that make the Son of God less than the Father somehow? Because isn't he, he's born of the... So you get automatically, you start having... And so the Fathers give us a basic, uh, I'll say, map but kind of fences to say this is the language that was given to us but they are equal with each other. He is the Son and has revealed all things to us because he is of the same essence of the Father. Because if he's not, then we don't have full access to God because then he's a creature. So I don't want to go into all of the details. We can do that in another class that has nothing to do with the divine liturgy uh, or in private (laughs) uh, because then we would spend forever. Um, But Christ is the theophany of God. We have within him, look at the content of his preaching. It's all about the kingdom of God. Uh, He basically reassembles Israel that has fallen astray by gathering to him how many apostles? 12 which is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is reestablishing basically uh the kingdom that had been lost in Eden. And if if you look at Jesus Christ, you can see especially as the gospels depict him, what is like the basic theme outside of the preaching uh about the kingdom, a theme that is through every single gospel that reflects intimately into, if you want to say, access into the life of Jesus Christ, is his prayer to the Father. He prays to the Father in every gospel, and there's an intimacy there, and there's a particular, uh, how shall I say, uh, way in which that Jesus Christ is uh, grabbing on to the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, all the way to the cross as he addresses the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that you have Jesus Christ as the great uh, exemplar. He is, as we'll talk about um, a little bit as we go through Romans 8, uh, he's the great high priest. He is the second Adam, as Paul talks about. And he's the second Adam because he in himself... uh, fulfills everything that Adam did not do. He fulfills everything that the patriarchs, the kings, everything that Israel was not able to do in Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of it. He lives the perfect human life. Uh, And he does this, and this is where the Holy Spirit, if you read the Gospels carefully, the Holy Spirit is present through all of this. The Holy Spirit abides upon the Son The Holy Spirit first at the Annunciation, the Holy Spirit prepares the womb for him to come. The Holy Spirit descends upon him at his baptism, drives, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, drives him into the wilderness uh, and is present throughout all of his miracles because the Trinity is working. I hate to talk that abstractly. The Father has sent the Son. The Son is accomplishing what the Father desires. This is the plan from before the foundations of the universe, according to Paul. Uh, but he does this all in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just Jesus running around the Holy Spirit as in something that comes later, but the Holy Spirit is present and operating throughout uh, the entirety of Jesus' life. Um, we see this especially, I think, uh, how we're to live a kind of Jesus-like life in, this, in the prayer that he gives to us, which is... Patrimon? The our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, this idea that Christ lives all of the, the, our Father, he lives all of the Beatitudes. If you look at the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to look and see how do I act in these ways, you look at Jesus. Uh, he explicates the law. He is the way of life of all of God's people. He's the reason why there's messianic banqueting going all throughout the gospels and they don't understand uh, because the kingdom uh, is always kind of more than an exceeding every expectation or idea of what a human would expect, righteousness, uh, or the ways that things should go. The kingdom usually has a slant on it that people are not ready for. Um, So we have in Christ the fullness of the depiction of who God the Father is, right? When he's asked, you know, who is God the Father? He says, have I not been with you? (laughs) If you see me, you see the Father. So this transparency of Jesus Christ to God the Father is also a transparency because he's lived life fully in the spirit. Um, This is, of course, exactly what's in store for us as Christians, right? We're baptized into Jesus Christ, and we are sealed with what via holy chrism? The Holy Spirit. We are to live the life of Christ in our particular context and who we're supposed to be. Um, And we do that in the particularity of, as uh, one way of talking about, like, we're the little Christs, right? We are the anointed ones. We're the ones who have been brought into the kingdom to live out the kingdom for the sake of the world. And so we do this in the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus, uh, we have access to Jesus. That is how Jesus comes into us. That is how, as we're going to see uh, in Romans 8, we're able to pray to the Father. Uh, And this is kind of the basic format of what uh, the Trinity is. We pray to the Father in the Son, because we've been brought into relationship with the Son, uh, in the Holy Spirit. And this is kind of the basic framework of Trinitarian theology and what we are meaning when we say blesses the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you have a Bible, or maybe if you're going to have Google, you can Google quickly and pull up Romans 8. I think I've, I'm working here because I just grabbed a New American Standard Bible. of New King James. would work fine. Um, and I want us, in the next 20 minutes that we have to just kind of work through Romans 8. Um, It's hard with Paul, because he's not systematic, uh, to be able to break down um, how the apostolic teachings uh, reflect the Trinity. Uh, But I want us to be able to at least see what the... Because the, the Trinity is not... So let me ask this. How many people heard teaching about the trinity growing up in whatever church that you grew up in you heard some what kind of stuff it's like an egg it's like an egg think, uh, lord have mercy
1: the shell the white and the that all one egg.
0: okay that's fascinating i've never heard that I,
1: I A yeah, uh, common image i heard was um, fire, fire and light
0: that's a patristic example yeah. that yeah
1: we got that in the well, Baptist Church. <laughs> <laughs> we Excellent. To do water, you know.
0: I, I said that here a few months ago, and people were like, "What?" So water, steam, steam and ice cubes. Ice
1: cubes, yeah. <laughs> <had> a triangle <laughs> musical instrument that each side is makes the
0: same
1: sound. Makes makes a sound. sound. No, no, nobody instrument. chimed in and said that's modalism, Patrick. Good
0: thing. <laughs> 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 Good one. <laughs> Somebody's been watching Lutheran satire. <laughs> uh, we So the fire, heat, and light is a better one than the other ones so far. Uh, the fathers all struggled with this because, and you'll get, if you especially, if you have a kind of dogmatic question, if you look to John of Damascus's uh, exposition of the orthodox faith, especially about Christology or Trinitarian things, you're going to get the basic outline of what uh, orthodox believe. Um, so he's very explicit in the exposition of the orthodox faith that with any of these things, of from the egg being probably one of the worst ones I've heard, uh, <laughs> to the fire, heat, and light, uh, these are all Material analogies that are trying somehow to grasp the immaterial. So we need to be extremely careful about... Uh, and the, the Gregory the theologian will be explicit about this. About when we're talking about what does it mean that Jesus Christ is um, begotten of the Father. Uh, uh, and that the Father is unbegotten. And everyone's like, well what does that mean? And Gregory's basically like, it means... What it means, like, it means that there, the father is the archae, he is the origin uh, of the divinity, he is uh, the fullness of divinity, and the son is begotten of him, and that is not a begottenness in the way that like, my wife begot uh, our children, or how we begot our children, that it is an immaterial action, uh, and so we have to be careful even with these words, because they immediately, especially in the, the late antique world, you can imagine all the stories about the gods what this could mean if it hits the Greek mind, and they say, So the Son has begotten of the Father. Well, then who's the mom? Like, uh, how does that work? Uh, so you can get in Gnosticism and other things, you can get really fantastic things, uh, secrets. Mormonism too, uh, yes, Mormonism as a contemporary, fascinating um, attempt to answer who God is that ends up in red, reductio ad absurdum. Ad absurdum. <laughs> it just gets absurd. Do what? He
1: lives on a planet called
0: Kolob. Is that even? That's
1: Mormon.
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know he had a specific planet name. Or a star. Or a star. Something. Yeah. Kolob. Wow. I think
1: it's in Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, what was that one sci-fi flick that was about Scientology that had John Travolta in it? That like bomb? Oh, Battlefield.
1: It wasn't about, but it was a, based on an Elrond Hoverboard. It.
0: Battlefield it, Earth. It, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's a great movie. It it is. A great movie. <laughs> So this is like what science mystery three thousand theater three thousand, where you make fun it, of all it, the horrible it, movies. It's,
1: it's it's not quite to that level, but it, it could be,
0: you know. <laughs> you just see the movie. I just remember <laughs> seeing John Travolta and thought he would looked like um, Star Trek or something, like a a Klingon or something. Yeah, that's the
1: least the same part of the film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, moving to Romans eight. Uh, <laughs> after Elron Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, so if you're looking at Romans 8, let's start in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not work according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I've already been alluding to or explicating with different vocabulary than what Paul uses specifically here, uh, but it helps in thinking about Paul when he's trying to explain these things to look in other places to understand Paul. Uh, And one of these is you have in Paul... This very specific idea, especially if you go back one and two, I wanted to start in verse three for a particular reason. Uh, but the law could not set us free from sin and death. So, law that God gave to Israel, uh, it was the basic. Um, how shall I say this? I'll use this, this analogy. Uh, the law that was given to Israel is kind of uh, a set of rules. But it's not the actual fulfillment of the rules, right? So the law was not able to actually save. Because all it really did is say, do this, do this, do this. But it does not enable you to do those things. It just tells you what it is that you should or should not do. The law, therefore, does not save. It can't free you from the fact that, as earlier in Romans, like, we're all basically... Uh, unable to do what the law asks of us. Uh, We're all uh, basically born uh, into a situation uh, and inherit a particular set of problematics from our parents uh, that then, mm, say, muddy the waters for us, uh, infects us, if you will, uh, with the problem of sin. So God sends his son, in verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He's the second Adam. He is the one who is able to offer uh, the full faithfulness to God that the law was pointing to. Jesus Christ is able to actually fulfill the law, right? So he gives us, uh, in verse four, uh, in him uh, providing the the offering, He condemns in the flesh so that we might live according to the spirit and fulfill actually what the law was intended to do. So let's move to verse five. For those who according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh set their minds on the flesh. Here we have, because uh, there's a classic, classic problematic here of what exactly uh, flesh means. And you can spin off in a particularly bad direction with this, right? Uh, can you imagine what a bad interpretation of to live in the flesh would mean? Uh, Gnosticism, essentially. Some form of Gnosticism, right? So explicate that a little bit without the, the vocab. <laughs>
1: uh, basically, uh, anything material and created is inherently wicked. The exactly. spirit is the only thing that is
0: good. Right. So this can happen pretty easily, and it can be a temptation, I think, even for us in orthodoxy. Uh, We have a a lot of spiritual disciplines, uh, and we have... uh, Orthodoxy does not shy away from the fact that we have an intense spiritual struggle before us. Now, that can go well, or it can go badly if we have bad uh, first principles. If we start with the first principle that the flesh inherently, like my body, is evil... Uh, you're going to end up in trouble. You are either, you know, fasting is going to become something that you use to punish your body. Uh, You will then, which is something that was later rejected very explicitly uh, by councils in the Eastern Church because this became a temptation to basically say you can never have sexual relations with your wife even because sex is, you know, pretty bodily. Uh, And therefore, because of that, uh, it's bad. Uh, This becomes a kind of always a temptation to be able to interpret flesh um, in this kind of Gnostic or uh, negative light. However, you can also I think take that and then say, okay, so we don't want to do that. You can also go to the other extreme, and I've experienced this, where they have an interpretation of saying like, oh, we can't say that the flesh is bad, so then what we really need to do is rejoice in the flesh. And completely forget about the spiritual struggle and the asceticism or the particular ways in which we need to live into the spirit uh, because God made all of creation, and God called it good, right? So eat, drink, and be merry. But that's a bad quote because that doesn't finish what the context of that is, Uh, which is usually what happens with the Bible is there's a lot of quotes taken out of context and used. Um, What is going on and what Paul is talking about is particular mindsets as he says it, the mindset on the flesh is death think about adam and eve they have the particular idea their mind is set on the flesh because they want uh you might maybe we can bring in first john here um i'm trying to remember the exact it's the exact phrasing of it but sin is micah you know what i'm looking for Uh Lust of the Eyes. Pride of the Life.
1: Yes. Yes. I'm
0: just trying to find it.
1: Yes, first John's
0: day, I mean this is the basic framework. Mm, not eighteen. The problem is when you use a Bible that you've used for 10 or 15 years, uh, more than that actually now, you have a lot of things that you've marked, so then it becomes like those <laughs> illegible because I can't actually pick out what I need. Whatever, I'm going to go with my riff on it instead of, <laughs> instead 15, of the specifics of it. 1 John 2, 15. Thank you. You were close. So do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We even get a little Trinitarian thing there, The Father, the Father. The love of the Father is not in him. And so Paul's flesh is John's world, right? The world is, maybe you could say worldliness, uh, fleshly life that looks after me, myself, and I that is concerned with how I'm going to satisfy my base desires no matter what. Um, You look at Adam and Eve. They want to be like God. They want access to knowledge that has been uh, fenced off from them, and so you have kind of in Adam and Eve obviously the kind of archetype of what sin is the pride of life the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes so what paul is talking about here is of course not then uh, some kind of denigration of our flesh but the way that we use it maximus confessor will say all sin is basically found in how you use things you either use it correctly or you use it incorrectly now to use it correctly is to what use it for the glory of the kingdom of God, that means um, particular ways of uh, sex, eating, uh, drinking. I mean, you go down all through the bodily things, which is where we can uh, abuse something, and it has to be done in the, the way that is in the spirit instead of in the mindset of the flesh. Let's move a little bit quicker because I have five minutes. So that's my fault, of course. Um, Let's jump down to 14 through 17. For all those uh, who being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The spirit of God is for those who are the sons of God. And we are, have access. And this is uh, where you can merge Romans 8 and basically the whole book of Hebrews together. Because you have the basic framework or argument. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's fulfilled everything that they were supposed to do and he's done this because he is the the son of the father and it's the father's household and he's going to bring you and me into that household we've been alienated we've been estranged we're outside of it but he's going to adopt us and bring us into the household so that then we have that relationship with the father this spirit of adoption uh paul talks about this in galatians uh five and ephesians one as well and i believe there's Another reference in First in the Corinthian discourse um, epistles. But this uh, spirit uh, himself dwells within us. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity becomes eminently pastoral instead of just kind of a philosophical exercise, but kind of metaphysics of who God is. And then, uh, you know, you can do this kind of like divine arithmetic or something, right? That the Holy Spirit dwells within us So that it can testify with our spirit that we are the children of God, that we're heirs of God. And if we move down to 18 through 23, um, our sufferings are then uh, captured and that God understands what we actually suffer. Because our battle in the flesh, against the flesh, to live in the spirit, uh, is also has subjected all of creation. This is why bad things happen, right? Right? Uh, If you look through verses 19 through 20, um, you can see very clearly here the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to to futility, but willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that all of creation the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now and not only this but also we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons the redemption of our body so that within as you go down to verse 26 the same way the spirit helps our weaknesses And prays and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Hebrews has very specifically that Jesus Christ becomes incarnate. He becomes our elder brother. He adopts us into the household of God. He suffers all things like us, right? This is the whole reason why he's the high priest, why he is still beyond the veil, offering to the Father the prayer, the sacrifice, uh, everything that we should be doing he does for us uh and the spirit is then it's not that jesus has just left right like elvis has left the building and then we're basically down here again we get back to the moralistic therapeutic deism right god is afar uh far off as long as we live a particular life uh this whole flesh spirit thing that sounds a little too hard and weird and complicated uh no what we have is very specifically is jesus christ became one of us but then When he leaves, he does not leave us, right? What does he say at the end of the Gospel of John? He's with us always. So Matthew, the end of Matthew, he says that very specifically, the text that we read at your baptism this last Sunday. Uh, He's going to send the paraclete, right? The advocate, the one, the advocate, because he dwells within our hearts and he groans with us. He cries out in ways that we don't even know how to express ourselves to God. That the spirit God is so close to us and speaks to God's self through us. Uh, Somebody was asking me, uh, I think Michael, it was you about, what does it mean, uh, Lord, you yourself pray within me? This is God praying within us where we are conforming ourselves to God but also God has done all of the really hard work for us. And he's basically grabbing us. And we have to work to uh, incorporate that into our life to kind of claim the uh, what we as heirs uh, have as our uh, birthright, as the down payment, as the way Paul talks about it in other epistles. Um, because all of this, and this is where Paul waxes so um, incredible is the rest of Romans 8. Who then is against us? There's nothing that stands against the love of Christ that has been given to us. There is not, uh, let's see here. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, principalities, another way of saying angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, another way to talk about um, kind of uh, invisible powers that exist in the world, uh, demonic powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." this is uh that we have I, I missed from 28 uh through 30 uh but this is what the plan has been the entire time right this was the plan there was no backup plan uh-oh adam and eve messed up now what do we got to do i guess you know almost like since we've already talked about mormonism yeah. uh, mormonism <laughs> were like uh-oh what do we do and then you have satan and uh christ kind of yeah. deb- get, offering different plans to save humans uh i'll take the case is that is that the video Uh, no okay that's kind of what they tell yeah it's it's funny uh but this is uh and i'll end um with here because the whole uh relationship of the father son and holy spirit is an intertwining of uh the fellowship of love the father begets the son and out, out of his love the Son exists, and the Son loves the Father back with everything that is within him. And the love between them, and this is not just Augustine, but this is also Gregory Palamas, is the Holy Spirit. And so when we, what we are being invited to, we talked about Messianic banquet at the, in Isaiah in the Old Testament. And then what we are being invited to when we say, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're being invited to that relationship of love the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Father, and then the Holy Spirit. And as we see here in Romans 8, that means the Son is sent into the world and in, in flesh like us to be able to draw us back to the Father. And when he goes back to the Father to be our high priest, to be our representative, he sends the Holy Spirit to be the advocate for us, to then allow all of us to be the anointed um, children of God, sons of God, so that we may continue... To actually bring the kingdom that was lost to the entire world, this is what the liturgy is. This is why, when we get to the Eucharist, this is us sitting down at the table of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to just end. I know I'm a little bit over, but this is better than the first class. Uh, <laughs> why, if you contemplate, does everyone know uh, Rublev's Trinity Icon or the uh, the Hospitality of Abraham? Because technically. Uh, it's not an icon of the father, but it is a kind of analogous way of talking about it because the fathers, very early on, uh, Ambrose and others of uh, Milan um, interpret this encounter. You have Abraham and Sarah, and they're sitting there and they uh, are encountered by three uh, strangers, angelic visitors. And the reason why I want to end on this is because the icon uh, that Andre Rublev and there's precedent for this but the famous one is Rublev uh, which I have been able by thanks be to God to actually see in person and it is quite an incredible icon but you have there the the three uh, angels they're all equal with each other they're all turned towards each other and they are all motioning to each other and to the table, whether there is a community of love, fellowship, uh, communion that is there that we are being invited to in that icon. And the table, of course, that has been prepared is the table of our Lord to be able to sit down at the Messianic banquet with them. So when you see that icon, this is an icon of the kingdom. Uh, and when we start the liturgy, we ourselves... Our beginning. Uh, this is the way that Father Alexander Schmemann would talk about it. Um, we are ourselves beginning the ascent into the kingdom. We <coughs> are in the throne room of God. We are with Moses at Sinai. We are with Isaiah in the throne room. We are with the entire hosts of heaven before God. The Son, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect humanity and the Spirit crying out within us. And you also have, as the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation, of course, is then uh, a dramatic depiction of all of this, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, You have the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord? So next week, um, I'm amazed that I actually kind of got through what I did. Um, I want us to begin looking at uh, (laughs) the... The rest of the phrase, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages, amen. Uh, Well, now and ever and unto ages of ages, and then amen. You might be wondering, how would I have anything to say about amen, but I do have something to say about amen. Um, And then we'll talk about a few other things, and hopefully we'll start moving into the great litany.